0: I'm Kay Firth-Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI, and this is In AI We Trust. Welcome back to In AI We Trust. This week we are missing our co-host Kay Forth Butterfield, but we are delighted to be joined by Kathy Baxter of Salesforce, the Principal Architect of Ethical Design, who you all have heard many times before, both on this show and in her many talks across the globe on Responsible Ethical AI. Kathy, we are delighted to have you on our show. Thank you for joining. Thank you so very much. I'm so sorry that Kay can't be with us, missing Kay, but I am so happy that I get the opportunity to play co-host. Well, so are we. It's always great to hear your insights in these conversations. So tell us a few things. I know you've been so busy. What have you been up to since we last spoke? I think that the biggest opportunity that has come around is I am now
1: a visiting AI fellow with NIST. I'm super happy to work with them on the AI risk management framework and carrying it forward. We recently had the third workshop in this series, getting feedback, and I was able to moderate a panel with some thought leaders in the field of AI governance, and so very excited about getting to spend the the next year, in addition to my role at Salesforce, of working with NIST on this really important work.
0: So exciting to hear. I can imagine how interesting it must be for you and how grateful we are in the general public that you'll be sharing your insights with NIST as they roll out this really important game-changing framework. And I know the workshop you mentioned was really thought-provoking. Anybody who wants to see it, you can find it online at the NIST website. Today, we have teed up what I'm sure will be another thought-provoking and insightful discussion. We're going to be speaking with Joaquin Quinonero Candela of LinkedIn. I am so excited for us to hear his deep insights. He's been in this space for a long time. So let's jump in. Currently, Joaquin is a Technical Fellow for AI at LinkedIn, a Senior Fellow for Technology and Public Purpose Project at the Harvard Billforce Center, a Board Member at Partnership on AI, and a Board Member at Artificial Intelligence Advisory Board for the Government of Spain. Previously, he worked for Facebook, now Meta, as tech lead for Responsible AI and director of engineering for Applied Machine Learning. He was also a guest lecturer at the University of Cambridge, a principal applied researcher at Microsoft. His accolades go on and on. Joaquin, we are so delighted to have you with us today.
2: I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. I am so thrilled to have you here
1: as well, Joaquin, and I'm so thrilled for the opportunity to co-host again. Joaquin, you have been a researcher, a teacher, senior executive in the field of AI. What started you on this AI journey and how did you land in the emerging field of responsible AI as one of the first big practitioners in this area?
2: Yeah, let's start with uh, with AI, or I guess machine learning, as we as we would call it uh, back then. Uh, my my interest um, emerged in the late '90s um, during my undergrad. I did an undergrad in telecommunications engineering in Madrid, Spain. I'm from Spain. And I had a, an amazing professor who taught us about adaptive filtering systems. So imagine that you know, you're, you're moving around with your mobile phone and you have the, the signal that gets your phone is bouncing on, on walls, on furniture, on, on stuff, right? And we were taught about algorithms that could be trained on, on data to suppress those ricocheting signals that would interfere with the signal you want, right? We were also taught, for example, if you're trying to listen to the heartbeat of a a baby uh, that's still inside the womb, you'll get interference from the heartbeat of the mom as well. And that heartbeat of the mom also bounces back on on different parts of the body. Same story. You could actually have algorithms that adaptively catch the, the signal of heartbeat of the mom and heartbeat of the mom plus baby and removes the the interference, right? So you get a clean signal. And that just blew my mind. The fact that you could have algorithms that learn in real time from data and that adapt, I was just uh, captivated. And so I decided to do my master thesis with this professor who sadly passed away a few months ago too young, but I'm so grateful to have had him in my my life because he really helped me discover this area. And then the rest is, um, a long story. I'll try to make as short as I can. I was sort of on track to be an academic in in ML slash AI. And then I I was introduced to Microsoft Research in Cambridge in the UK. And that was a pivotal moment. I decided to join that organization. It seemed to have all the benefits of uh, academia in that it was definitely a top um, venue for for doing scientific work and 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 publishing top tier papers, but at the same time being part of Microsoft, you had the ability to work with product teams and and ship things, and that was a second big moment in my career. Was I I, I was bitten by the by the shipping bug. I worked on applying machine learning to online advertising when Bing, the Microsoft search engine, launched, and we built the algorithm that helped make ads more relevant. And then I never looked back. Then I was offered the opportunity to join Bing. So to leave Microsoft Research and join an engineering team, that was another key moment. And when I when I did that, I, I discovered uh, a calling to be at the intersection between the fundamental research and, and applications. And so the rest of my career has been really in applied ML. Fast forward uh, to... 2012, I joined Facebook. We relocated from the UK because uh, I we had been living as a family in the UK at Microsoft Research in old Cambridge, UK, England. Moved to the Bay Area, joined Facebook, spent almost a decade at Facebook. And at Facebook, I, I did the same. I started to work on ML for ads. But then a lot of the work we did really was focused on building platforms and tools and services that would allow essentially every single engineer across the entire company to easily use AI and incorporate it into any product. And so I I ended up building and growing the Applied ML team for all of Facebook. It was an exhilarating journey. And then we get to another pivotal moment, which is responsible AI. So in around 2017, I was a good five years into, into Facebook and pretty burnt out. I had had a, an amazing, an amazing run, building applied ML for the entire company, leading a, a several hundred people organization, but it was extremely intense, right? So I was thinking, uh, you know, about what to do. We we get this uh, recharge every five years. Uh, I guess many companies do these things where you get a an extended number of days off, and, and those are times to reflect. And a, a lot of things that I had been thinking about through the years came back to me. Things like back in the Microsoft days, when we we're building ad relevance prediction, was it okay to use gender as an input? Back then, when I asked that question around both inside and outside Microsoft, and we're talking, you know, 2009 or something like that, no one seemed to have an answer. Like, like people just didn't know, right? And in 2017, at the Neurips conference, we had Kate Crawford give an invited talk about uh, bias in AI. We had Salon Barocas and Moritz Hart give a tutorial on bias in AI. And so I was both super excited because I'm like, wow, like now definitely these things are very visible. At the same time, I thought, oh, wow, this is the same mess we had in 2009 where no one knows <laughs> you know, what, what what definition of fairness applies when and so on and so forth. So I, I decided to build a responsible AI team for, for Facebook, focusing a lot on fairness and uh, and i've kept I've kept on that journey since, and I still find it one of the biggest challenges we have in AI today is how to is how to build AI responsibly.
0: I learned so much from that answer, your exciting journey, and some really key elements that we can all learn from in that journey. First of all, the importance of the teacher. I love that this exciting adventure was sparked by a teacher who shared their passion with you and how fortunate you are and, and how much we need to make sure that that's the experience for as many students across the globe as possible, as well as the great point you landed with that as many questions as there are, they only seem to grow and they're still there. I mean, luckily, I think we've made some progress in the last year alone, um, which we'll talk more about today. But uh, so interesting that uh, you're asking several of the same questions today that you asked uh, over 10 years ago. So tell us about some of your work. Let's start with the Harvard Belfer Center. You're working with the Technology and Public Purpose Project. Tell our listeners more about your work, and, and how does this relate to some of the other positions you're currently holding?
2: Yeah, I'm lucky to have been in the right place at the right time a long time ago, working on machine learning, just when it was starting to really be adopted at scale. And so I've seen a lot of things, and I have accumulated a lot of uh, different experiences applying ML to all kinds of applications, right? And so I'm also very, very lucky now to have the opportunity to share that knowledge back on many different forums. You mentioned the Belfer Center. I'm a non-resident fellow which is a very, very flexible, non-paid position that also doesn't really have very strong expectations, but it gives you an amazing forum to interact with brilliant uh, colleagues and, um, and also to share back uh, knowledge and, and to learn. And so I'll give you two examples of things that I've done um, in, in my time with the, with the Belfer Center. One was an unlikely follow-up conversation with uh, Karen Howe, who used to be a reporter for the MIT Technology Review, who wrote a a piece originally meant to be a piece on the work we had done on AI fairness at Facebook for a long time. But after the Capitol riots of January 6th last year, the article took a, a sharp turn towards uh, concerns about AI in, in, in social media and uh, the propagation of misinformation and and polarization and violence and all these things. So almost one year later, almost one year after that, that piece came out, Karen, who by pure coincidence was also a non-resident fellow at the Belfer Center, and I were hosted by the Belfer Center to have uh, come back and, and sit down and and address those issues that, that Karen brought up in the article that were not related to AI fairness, but that were related to AI in in, in social media. So I feel very happy that we had that, that follow-up conversation because I feel that a lot of the questions she raised in that article, although they were not about the work on AI fairness that the team had, had been doing, which obviously initially I found disappointing, at the same time, I have to say the questions were good and, and deserved to be answered. So we, we did a piece where we went live for about an hour, and uh, I'm happy to share the link later if you, if you wanna share it back with the audience. The second piece of work has been on a brief for policymakers and you know, for Washington DC in general on recommender systems in, in, in social media. And this work is work that has fully been done by a member of the Belfer Center, not by me. I have been one uh, of four close advisors who've helped revise a draft and brainstorm and provide input and, and again, share the experience. So you mentioned other positions. I served on the board of the Partnership on AI for a good three years. I stepped down recently after I joined LinkedIn because LinkedIn is a Microsoft company and uh, we we have another board member Eric Horvitz who is chief scientist at, at at Microsoft and so we couldn't have two members from the same organization and I was very happy to take a break after three years I think it's a good it's a good thing and make space for others but I remain very involved actually and I was asked to stay on the nominations committee of the Partnership on AI. And the work I've been doing there, which we can come back to a little bit later in our, in our conversation is, I've been really, really pushing hard to have a very, very principled approach to diversity and inclusion in how we choose new board members. And then finally, I've been advising the government of Spain as part of an external advisory board they've put together. The theme remains the same. It's about sharing experience, educating, and, and advising on, on policymaking.
0: And thank you for offering those links. We will certainly share those when we publish the podcast. So you touched on quite a few things there, um, including
1: some of that amazing work at Facebook, now Meta where you led the technical strategy for areas, including fairness, inclusiveness, robustness, privacy, transparency, accountability, all of, the, all of the really important foundational concepts that we all know about with responsible AI now. Can you tell us about some of that work? How did you go about developing this strategy? Again, this was really early on that you were doing a lot of this work. And what were some of those challenges that you encountered?
2: There were many challenges, for sure, starting with the fact that unlike other areas like security or privacy, which are mature as far as regulation is concerned, and you can have compliance efforts that you don't need to justify. Everybody understands that you need to be compliant. Here, back in 2017-18, we're talking about defining best practices that we want to self-impose even though regulation isn't fully there to tell us what's expected. And so that causes two immediate challenges, right? The first one is you have to decide what you want to hold yourself accountable for, right? There's no blueprint. And the second one is you also need to explain why we should be doing this in a world where this is voluntary in many ways, right? I found that the most effective thing to to do this is First, obviously, to invest in awareness and education. One thing that I have found is that across all functions, not only at Facebook, but in my previous time at Microsoft or now at LinkedIn, or, you know, Katie, you've been an amazing host of uh, gatherings of people from different industries. I find one thing in common is that I am yet to talk to someone who doesn't want to build products that serve both people and communities. Whether it's people from legal, from design, from analytics, from engineering, from policy, it doesn't matter. Generally, people want to do the right thing. But at the same time, there's a pretty striking lack of awareness of the unintended consequences that technology uh, in general and AI can have. And so it all begins with sharing stories and, and sharing examples, right? I remember when uh, Joy Boulamwini and Timnit Gebru educated people on face detection and maybe emotion and gender recognition a a couple of years ago now. When we look at it today, we think, oh, yes, of course. But back then, it it was amazing to see people's faces, including my own, when you're like, oh, wow, it's really striking how certain algorithms don't work for darker skin tones, for certain gender and age presentations, right? or i remember when propublica did the work on understanding the use of ai in the criminal justice system for example those results were also pretty shocking and led to to huge conversations and 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 debates right so i think it all it all starts there with with, with awareness then the next step is you have to be extremely focused and you have to focus on on case studies you can't begin broad because if you're trying to push something that is still malleable, not well defined across the board. It will be rejected. You you can't go around dozens of teams and ask them to do some work that's not clearly defined, where the reward is not clearly defined either. <laughs> that just does not work. Especially in a, in a world where we face fierce competition, right? In in all of our in all of our companies, right? So the business is to keep going at very high speed. Resources, especially now, right with with the with layoffs and everything, resources are scarce. You need to have a very very clear set of expectations and a very clear understanding of why you're doing it. So the the approach that I saw work was to be laser focused on very specific end to end case studies that prove a concept, that prove the concerns, and that prove how to show them, how to fix them. And one thing I've spoken about in the in the past, an example that I think illustrates some of these unintended consequences was. In the context of the India general um, elections back in 2019, we used AI heavily to detect election interference type of content. And we made sure that those algorithms, combined with the human review resources, did work across different regions in India and different languages, right? And you could see the risk that you could leave behind some some regions or some languages and leave them unprotected with with real-world consequences. Once you have an end-to-end case study that you can explain to people, their imagination just starts going immediately. And then they become advocates, and then they'll see where you can't see. Because the other thing is, you can't have a centralized team understand everything, right? It's, It's essential. It's essential to empower every product team to drive responsible AI.
0: You gave us a lot to unpack there, and I really hope we can get to a lot of that, because we all really need to learn from some of the really uh, important experience you've had and some of the wisdom you've been able to identify and put into practice, starting with the basic question, what am I going to be accountable for? No one wants to do harm, but if you maintain that broad question, you can have impact defining impact specifically where you're focusing your efforts is hard because it leaves things on the table. It also needs to be translated in your case, across the globe to different audiences. So we really want to learn more from you on that. But we also want to hear how you made this pivotal change. You you mentioned something that was very fortunate that you were able to take a break. You said that you think it's standard. I think most people listening to this podcast wish that was standard. And it should be for the very reason that you experienced. You were able to get back to your roots of what was motivating you and, and where you wanted to have impact. So you took this breath, you refocused and you landed at LinkedIn. Tell us why, what was the work there that was most speaking to you? And what are some of the projects you're working on that you're so excited about?
2: When I left Facebook, uh, because I I never worked at Meta, Facebook was renamed shortly after I left. So I always make that joke that that I never worked at Meta. When I left Facebook in September, 2021, I, I took some time off. I didn't rush to take the next job. And I didn't really know which direction I wanted to go. So what I did is I, I went back to first principles and I thought, well, what matters to me? And I came up with three things that matter to me. The, the first one is to have a vision and a mission that I deeply believe in. I want to work with people and with an organization where I can feel very proud of the work we're doing. So that was one requirement. The second one is we all end up spending most of our time with the people we work with that's that's just how it is and so i wanted to be in an environment with a culture and with colleagues that have values that are very compatible with mine they don't need to be perfectly aligned but they need to be very compatible and i need to i need to feel zero regret if i'm giving my everything working on projects with my colleagues and then the third one is I wanted to work somewhere where I could contribute. It's important to have a sense of purpose. It's important to, to think, well, I, I am able to bring something to the table here. Interestingly, LinkedIn was not on my radar when I, when I left, and not for any bad reason. It was just uh, was not on my radar, period. But I had, a, I had an old friend who was working there, and invited me for coffee after I left Facebook, and we started to chat. I met his boss, who's now my boss, Yaju. Also, by the way, my first female manager ever in my career, and in fact, I'll say more—the first female in my chain of command in my career, which is uh, pretty concerning. But I'm, I'm extremely happy that that now has changed for me at least. And I was blown away. I was blown away by the by the people. So on my on my second principle. The kindness, I would say how incredibly human people interested, not only in transactional relations, but more in understanding who you're working with and digging into the, into the human side with a, with a culture that's very humble. I've been really impressed with the openness to embrace newcomers and strangers like, like me into the, into the company and then a company where as i dug into the into the mission and vision to give economic opportunity to every member of the global workforce and that every that every member really resonated very strongly with me i'm like oh this is pretty cool that we have something that sounds like equity in the in the vision so i'm like okay and then i and then i looked a little bit more at you know data and statistics and what is linkedin doing in order to use technology to help people have access to, to better jobs and growing their careers. And I was convinced. It's also pretty simple to understand, right? I'm like, is it hard to understand what LinkedIn does? No, it's not. It's pretty pretty simple and it's, and it, and it's a good thing. So that was great. And then finally I thought, well, what can I bring to the table? I mean, I can bring to the table a, a lot of experience having seen a, a lot of things, but also I've been really deep in the trenches on responsible AI in general and on AI fairness and I thought, oh, wow, it seems like the work LinkedIn does is one where AI fairness is very, very directly applicable. And so the, the the combination of all these reasons is why I joined LinkedIn. And I've been extremely happy and excited. I joined in February of this year, so I suppose almost 10 months ago. I've had the chance to do a, a lot of work on AI fairness. Some of it we will be able to share soon. So I'm very excited about that. Building on the on the shoulders of, of an amazing team that had been working on AI fairness and, and pioneering a lot of work already for, for many years. So that's really been phenomenal. But also looking at how we use AI in our online jobs marketplace, and how we look at it end-to-end, not only the AI component, but even design. And it's really a pleasure to have the opportunity to, to be in a role where I can really work across the company and across functions.
1: I remember at a workshop that Yoss Schlesinger and I did at the FACT conference in January, 2020, right before the world blew up. We were so lucky. You were one of the presenters you were so amazing. And I remember there was a phrase that you said that has stuck with me ever since of ethics lives in the everyday design decisions. And I was like, yes. (laughs) Can you tell our audience what you meant by that? And how does that influence your work?
2: Yeah, a few thoughts about that. I think I I tend to say these things a bit as a reaction to responsible AI or the ethics of AI focusing too much on AI. I often say that responsible AI is not primarily an AI problem. At the end of the day, you need to solve end-to-end problems. If using AI to suggest qualified candidates to a recruiter, once they've uploaded a job description and selected a bunch of criterias. But I'm not giving that recruiter feedback or information on the demographic composition of their pipeline, then I'm not really solving the problem, right? The the, the AI on its own will try to abide by some definition of, of fairness, but the user interface, the, the information we feed back, how we how we give control back to humans, how we think carefully about the human in the loop, even where we place buttons, how we design them, right? Will or will not encourage that recruiter to maybe broaden their search criteria Do we have a way to really incentivize a recruiter or a hirer to say, hey, maybe I should consider these additional universities and so on and so forth? Those are not primarily AI problems, right? They're they're design problems. We've been very concerned about misinformation, divisive content spreading on social media, right? Where AI is, of course, optimizing for some objective function. And you can think really hard about the objective function. You can say, well, time spent seems too simple. Let's do something more subtle, meaningful time spent. Maybe I want not total number of clicks or reactions or likes or loves or whatever, but maybe I'm gonna weigh more the ones that are from close connections, et cetera, et cetera. You can do all of that, but at the end of the day, you're gonna have a certain given function and optimizing it blindly can backfire right? inadvertently. And so there, there are very important design decisions, which is like, do I put a share button or not? That's not an AI decision. If I press share, does it share only with my close contacts or does it share with the entire world right what amount of uh, sharing friction you know do I, do i add etc right those are design decisions these are not you know primarily ai questions but but the ai and design they just work as one and then finally i think we need to talk about diverse perspectives as well right when i say ethics lives in the everyday design decisions who's making those decisions and what contrarian or or counterbalance points of view can we have in a room? One of the last things I did at Facebook before I left is I I started to work very hard on diversity and inclusion. And to me, it felt like a very natural continuation of the work on Responsible AI, because I felt at some point you reach the limits of what a process can do. A process without a diverse and inclusive culture and environment is useless, right? It's essential to have a group of people that will disagree and that will represent as many perspectives sometimes antagonistic as possible and then the process itself should of course ensure that there's proper deliberation and a, and a documented decision making process that you can revisit if need be one uh, maybe silly but but striking example at facebook when we were building the the portal camera or the portal video conferencing device in fact i can probably do a little show and tell because i have one here here i'm not using it right now but this is an amazing device this is the old model this is not manufactured anymore it was one of the first video conferencing devices there to really do amazing body tracking and if my wife or one of my kids entered the room right now the camera would zoom out to put everybody in frame if we moved it would it would pan it's just magic and we had a black female colleague who was on the portal team testing this ai camera and she would be cropped out. And there was this very dramatic test, I remember, where uh, she was with a white male colleague, and the camera would just zoom on him, although she was talking, and they were both sitting side by side, right? A- again, I-, I kind of like and don't like that example, because that's not really what I mean with with diversity. Here, we're talking about gender presentation and and, and skin tone. But it gives you an idea of the importance of having Not not only diversity of physical traits, which in in this case, you should have had properly inclusive and diverse test sets, right? But I'm I'm talking much more about different lived experiences, different perspectives that really allow the right type of debate and and discussion that I think prevents a lot of traps, right? It doesn't guarantee that you won't have problems, but everyday design decisions need to be made by, by a diverse group of people in an inclusive environment
0: couldn't agree more. Again, there's so many things I want to ask you about from each of these questions, so it's clear to me we're going to need to impose on you and have our first part two to really unpack so much of what you said, the diversity on teams, the diversity in creating AI, the diversity in management, what we mean by diversity, the process you led. I, I want to hear more about how you refined it along the way. I want to commend you on the, the maturity you demonstrated in going back with Karen Howe and having that conversation, so many ethical, principled points you've talked here, both on the meta level, (laughs) I use in the literal sense, as well as, as your personal experience. I mean, even when you talk about what you were looking for in a position, I can't imagine those aren't three things that we all want to find community with culture, purpose, and meaning in the products. So I hate to imagine what my last question is going to be because I don't want to wrap up this conversation. But I think if there's one thing that I really want to make sure we learn, our listeners learn from you, you alluded to the need to storytell and to illustrate to the team why this is something they should own and care about. And you've had this experience with the most technical of technical teams. I'm curious, You gave some examples of how you've spoken to them. Are there key elements that we can take from how you have moved the field so that this is something that the teams that you've worked with, whether they're engineering teams, understand and care about and how that changes? With the different teams you've worked at, for instance, I'm sure you talk with lawyers um, when you when you have the broader audience. Sometimes we're a little harder to talk to when it comes to AI and, and frameworks and these newer conversations. How do you speak with policymakers? Are there are there core elements that we can learn from you as to how you've translated in a story or otherwise to these very different teams, these very critical cross functional messages?
2: Wow, that's a very hard question, but I'll do I'll do my best. I have had the honor and the pleasure to work with all kinds of functions and indeed many, many lawyers, policy experts, and of course, all all technical functions. A a word you said that resonates very strongly is translation. Uh, A lot of what I've done all all my career and in particular working on Responsible AI is, is translation. But before translation, I think the single most important thing is really to align behind a common vision and also to bust some myths. So on the vision, like I said, no matter where I've worked, I haven't found it difficult at all to ignite people's existing wish and yearning for building things that are helpful to others and to communities. So that's not hard. You just need to rekindle it, but it's it's. I find that it's there, right? Then there are some myths to be busted. One myth that bothers me is this notion that responsibility and and business goals are a trade-off or they're a zero-sum game or a fixed buy. I think that's not true most of the time. I think most of the time they're very well aligned and it's just a matter of what timeline are you optimizing your business goals for and how far do you want to go, right? And I believe deeply, especially, you know, I have kids, they're uh, 13 and a half, 16 and uh, 20, right? So I have a bit of a spectrum of different generations right there. Their expectations and their friends' expectations of the businesses they, they transact with are pretty demanding in terms of ethics, interestingly. So I do think that building things responsibly gives you a business advantage. Period. I think that that's true, and we could probably spend a whole session going through examples of why that's true. And I think that that's really, really important to to clarify. And then the third point, and the last point, is that it's very important to be to strike the right balance between being idealistic, but also being practical. I, I like this phrase: "Perfect is the enemy of good." I, I think sometimes we can get caught in that trap. And I've seen I've seen that divide where you have people who maybe come more from the responsibility side being perhaps sometimes idealistic and not spending enough time understanding the, the the business constraints that exist. And I've also seen people coming from the business side dismiss people who work on responsibility almost as being too idealistic, right? And I think the intersection in the Venn diagram is much bigger than people think and I, and I think that when I talk to my responsibility friends and colleagues, I think everybody understands, if, if you spend the time, the business constraints and how to make things work and vice versa. And now to answer your question with all of this, in talking to different functions, I think that alignment on vision, busting myths, but also keeping it very real, right, on that tension between business and uh, and, and responsibility and making sure that, hey, it might seem that way, I understand why it would seem that way to you, that that this is two factions, but actually, It doesn't need to be. Just being very real, right? Like you have to put it on the table. Don't don't shy away from it. And then translation. To give you an example of translation, I remember talking to policy makers from Europe on some draft and looking at expectations like, hey, we should be able to reproduce any prediction an AI algorithm has made in the past five years or something like that. And of course, you have to go and say, all right, all right we're constantly retraining this algorithm on terabytes of data every couple of days. The amount of data we'd have to store to precisely reproduce a prediction we made four years ago is impractical. You cannot do that. Like technically it's impossible. And so there, what I find effective is to pause and say, but tell me, why do you want that, right? What problem are we we trying to solve? And then maybe it's a, a bit of a retrospective audit, right? And you're like, okay, well, maybe there's other ways we could do that. What if we had a reference data set that we could always be making predictions on and we store those, that's gonna be a lot smaller That we can store, right? And we can even work together on what that reference data set should be so that we can see if there's any concerns, you know, how they evolve over time and are we getting better? Just as just as an example, right? Conversely, I, I have it often with my engineers' friends, right? Oh my God, legal, have you, have you talked to legal? Have you talked to legal yet? right? That's, that's the question. i like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, we're not allowed to use this data, whatever. It's like, okay, but did we explain why we want to use it, right? What problem we're trying to solve? Because at the end of the day, this is a thing that sometimes I think we engineers don't realize. I think an engineer is trained to think in binary, right? Like you can do something or you cannot, and that's it. It's like almost like a permanent state. And what I found working with legal is everything is a conversation of intent versus risk, right? And it's always a, a, a trade-off, right? Benefit versus risk. And you have to engage fully in, in that conversation. That was a long-winded and twisty answer. and uh, but I, I hope I, I hope it was helpful.
1: That was excellent. Well, just as Miriam said, I hate to make this my last question. But each time we close the show, we close by asking our guests one final question. If you were able to remove current barriers and boundaries with a magic wand to achieve one wish that would help us achieve responsible AI what would that be?
2: I think I'd go back to one of the things I said in the in the very long answer to the to the previous question which is I would try to remove that almost political barrier that I think exists between people who come maybe more from the pure business side who are perceived sometimes to be ruthless and to put business first at all costs and, and, and who seem to be not open to self-regulation and to doing things, you know, a- anything that's not illegal, right, I can do. And I don't think that's true. And conversely, the other barrier is is that perception of the pioneers of, of responsible AI as being anti-capitalism. I also think that's not true right i think people are just pushing hard for the right thing to be done and again like if i if i visualize this as, as a venn diagram right as as intersection of and i'm oversimplifying business minded people and maybe responsibility minded people i hate to make this this distinction but i think the intersection is much bigger than than people think it is and once you make it past those, those perception barriers and that sad polarization that we're seeing then the real work starts and the real fun begins
0: Thank you so much, Joaquin. This is a lot to think through and digest. I'm really grateful you spent the time talking with us today and sharing your insights and experience with our listeners.
2: Of course, it's my pleasure. And let's keep the conversation going.
0: Let's do it. Well, Kathy, as we thought, Joaquin was deeply thoughtful. He's had so much experience in understanding what it means to integrate responsible AI governance thinking about defining it and then bringing it across teams, across enterprise, what were some of the big takeaways for you?
1: That easily could have been a two-hour podcast. There was just so Mm -hmm. much in there. So I was so exciting. I think one of the points that you made that I really liked was the need to be very focused on specific use cases, like really clearly defining what is it that you are trying to solve rather than being too broad. And I know I've experienced that myself in my work that if we talk about problems or challenges or risks in too broad of a scale, it can feel like boiling the ocean or it just doesn't feel realistic. You don't know how it applies to you and what actions you should be taking. And so being able to really be clear about what the impacts are and the benefits so that you can really empower every team, not just to know generally ethics is important, but what do I do about it? So that ability to move from principles to practice.
0: Yeah, I thought that was super interesting as well. I also was really struck by his focus on storytelling and, you know, something we think a lot about. I know it's a very big part of your job at Salesforce and certainly our main focus in Equal AI is how do we make this a cause so that the people we're talking to make it their cause? You know, rather than just creating a checklist or a general awareness, how do we create enthusiasts who will take the time to do this work and how do we communicate? That in such a large variety of roles. It's across enterprise, it's policymakers. You know, when it comes to responsible AI, obviously, we all have a role to play. And how do we communicate in a way that it's meaningful and also help it become a priority? I mean, in all fairness, everyone has a million things that they have to do every day. Uh, they have fires to put out. They have Managers and and bosses to respond to. They have kids that they need to attend to, parents, you know. So, how do we make this the urgent issue that we all know it is? Certainly, the work with the risk management framework that you are supporting will be helpful in pushing that forward as we all can align on these well thought out standards and principles. But I really take his point about some of the strategies that have been successful and the need to continue to focus in on how to make this a cause that we all continue to weigh in on and care about and advocate for. You know, related to that, one of
1: the other points he made that I loved was. Responsible AI is not primarily an AI problem. You know, this is a socio-technical problem. And talking about how design can influence one's ability to make more responsible decisions or take more responsible actions. We often at Salesforce talk about making it as easy to do the right thing and as difficult or impossible to do the wrong thing. And that really is centered in design and then adding to that, he spoke a lot about diverse perspectives, who is making these decisions, um, and and how uh, diversity, equality, inclusion, it's just part of responsible AI having those lived experiences to be able to not just guess what potential unintended consequences are, but really know what the potential harms are. And then what are solutions that involve everyone? So the the whole concept of not designing for someone, but designing with someone. And, and it, I just, that, that entire discussion I thought was just so amazing.
0: That's such a great way to frame it and agree. I mean, those are two points that I just loved that he made and that you know seem to be a continually raised in these conversations. Having trustworthy AI is not, you can't just focus on your AI. There's no AI tool that will create AI that is ethical. It has to be a part of a culture. The benefit is uh, when you get this right, your culture benefits. You've built trust within your organization. You build trust with your customers and partners. So there's no shortcuts around it. It has to be a part of an inclusive, diverse team Period. End of story. It's part of a broader ecosystem. AI needs to support our values and there's no way around it. It has to be inclusive and we have to bring in as many voices as possible in its creation and throughout the process. So really loved doing this with you today. As always, thank you so much for another great conversation and I will look forward to another one coming up soon. Yes. Thank you so much.
1: Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.
0: And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible.